Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It is great to see you here this morning and to worship with you. For those of you that don't know me, if you're new, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to pick up our psalm series again for the summer. Of course, we'll be in God's Word like we are every Sunday. We're in Psalm 38, and hopefully you already are turned to Psalm 38. If you're anything like me, you probably forgot where we even left off in the psalms. It's been so long, but I'm excited to pick up in this psalm. It's a somber message, but a powerful one. Psalm 38 Verses 1 to 22. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. A psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day long I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word expecting to be challenged, encouraged, Pray, Father, that these words by your King, King David, would help us to trust you. That even through his suffering, his grief, we might be pointed to Jesus as we see the one who suffered in our place. Father, it will take a miracle for us to see this and do this. So we pray that you would, or that your word 
that you would use your word to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. Father, you would be patient with us as we are patient with each other as we grow in grace. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I am sorry if. I am sorry if. You ever heard an apology like that? Comes up a lot, doesn't it? If you're sorry, you're sorry. No ifs, no conditions needed. But we love to add these little words to apologies to kind of lighten the blow or to get ourselves off the hook. And we add so many of them. Maybe you've heard apologies like this. I am sorry if I did anything wrong. I'm sorry if you were offended. It's always a funny one. You're the problem. You're the one that's a little touchy. You were offended there. How about this? I'm sorry you. That's the second word you don't want to add to any so-called apology. Can't be sorry for somebody else. But we do it. I'm sorry you felt hurt. I'm sorry you feel I did something wrong. I'm sorry you saw that side of me. (laughs) That one's funny because it's not my sin that's the issue. It's just that you saw it. I need to do a better job of hiding it. Well, I'm sorry if, I'm sorry you, but how about this one? I'm sorry but. That's the most dangerous. Because that turns it around or that brings an excuse. I'm sorry, but you started it. I'm sorry, but I had a bad day. I'm sorry, but I was just kidding. (laughs) Did you ever use that one? I didn't mean it. You misunderstood me. I'm sorry. I was just kidding. Did not mean to have that come out of my mouth. I'm sorry, but I was just trying to help. Here's another word you don't want to use, regret. Regret is another sidestep word. It's a fake apology word. I regret making you upset. And the one we hear that's probably the most infamous, I regret that mistakes were made. (laughs) That's a political answer right there, isn't it? So vague. That's the one the athletes give when they're caught cheating or the politicians are trying to cover something up. Bad stuff happened. Maybe some of it by me. (laughs) Mistakes were made. There's a learning curve. Let's move on. Youthful indiscretion or whatever they want to call it. I am amazed, amazed at the amount of fake apologies we can come up with. This is a short list. This took me like a few minutes. There's tons more. We are masters at fake apologies and fake repentance. We are so used to talking about our sin where there's no ownership of sin, where it's not really us, it's completely disconnected from us. We can apologize and repent, and the whole time we're apologizing, we're looking for escape hatches along the way to get us off the hook. We're so tempted to have this fake repentance. And then we read this. Verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. No ifs, no buts, no yous, no regrets, no qualifications, no excuses, no explanations for his sin. Just straightforward ownership of sin. Genuine, true repentance. This is what we're after as Christians, isn't it? This is what we hope to get to, but it can be so hard to get there. Which is why we need Psalm 38. 
Now, you probably guessed this is a penitential psalm. It's one of those psalms that talks a lot about confession and sorrow for sin. Now, we've done some of these in the past. There are seven of them in the Psalter. There's Psalm 6, Psalm 32, and then Psalm 38. Probably the most famous one is Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba. And then you have Psalm 102 and 130 and 143. Now, these psalms are a gift to the church because they're a model of repentance. The churches use these kinds of psalms throughout the centuries in corporate worship to teach the people how to confess, to give the people language to approach God, to humbly approach God in faith and in repentance. And we are reminded of that even in the superscript. Look at the superscript of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David... Then the ESV says, for the memorial offering. Now that's an okay translation, but it's too specific because that makes us think, well, this must have been the memorial offering in like Leviticus 2. And it probably was used in the memorial offering. But I think you should translate that a little bit more general. Like the King James says, the New King James says, this is to bring to remembrance, to cause remembrance. That's the goal of this psalm. David wants this psalm to be a memorial to be a reminder for God's people. And then that begs the question, a reminder of what? A reminder for who? Who is this a reminder for? Is it a reminder for God to remember us, to be merciful to us as Moses prays in the wilderness? Or is it a reminder for us, for David, to remember our guilt and our need for God? The answer is yes. It's actually both. It's a plea for God to be merciful and to remember us, but it's also for us to remember the mercy of our God, which is why it's perfect for corporate worship. But it's not a psalm that's usually picked. (laughs) The reason why is because even among the penitential psalms, this psalm stands out. Most of the other penitential psalms, they get to confession and comfort really quickly. Even Psalm 51, verse 1, right out of the gate, says this, Have mercy on me, O God. He's confessing. He's pleading with God. And then he says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He gets right to mercy. Not this psalm. You probably noticed as we read this, this psalm embraces the discomfort. He camps out in the pain. He meditates on the consequences of his sin. And we don't get a real clear confession or even a real clear comfort until the very end, starting in verse 18. What amazes me as I read this psalm is this is the leader of Israel confessing these things. This is God's king. I don't know about you, but most of us would never say this stuff in public. Most of us would have a hard time even saying this in private. Our leaders in our world and even in our church, this is the kind of stuff they want to cover up. But this is David, God's chosen king, the hero of the faith, the man after God's own heart, and this psalm proves it. Because not only is he clearly confessing his sin, acknowledging his guilt, he's doing it for the whole world to see. He says, God is teaching me, but he wants to teach all of his people through my struggle. So I will put my struggle on display for generation after generation so God's kindness, God's mercy is known forever. 
That's what David's doing here with this song. It's so rare. It's astonishing. It's even breathtaking when you really read it. And I was reminded this week, it will take a miracle for us to get here. A supernatural miracle for sinful, broken human hearts to get to this place. To get to the place of humility and frailty before God and before each other. But I'm confident that God's word is powerful. His spirit is at work. And the grace of Christ is sufficient for these things. So I am hopeful, even as we study this psalm, that we will be changed. So what does this psalm really teach? What's the essence of the psalm? This shows us what sin produces. Results, the destruction of sin. And it shows us how to deal with that. It shows us what to do as sinful Christians when we sin. How do we approach our Lord? So we're going to split it up into two parts. The first is sin's destruction. That's the heaviest part. Verses 1 through 14. And then the second is the sinner's response. The sinner's response starting in verse 15. So first, the sin's destruction. And there are four different aspects or pieces of this destruction. Four different consequences. And the first in verse 1 is that sin brings wrath and discipline. It brings the wrath and discipline of God. Look at verse 1 with me. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now it sounds like a desperate plea, and it is. But David is making a really important distinction here. He's talking about discipline and wrath, almost as if they're opposed to each other. About anger and rebuke. And what David is doing here, he's making a very clear distinction between the children of wrath and the children of God. David's not trying to say, look, Lord, I don't deserve your discipline. Or I'm not guilty, I don't deserve your wrath. He's saying, Lord, I deserve your wrath. I am just as guilty as anyone else out there. But what he's saying here is, Lord, when you discipline me, treat me like a son. Lord, discipline me, but don't destroy me in sin. Rebuke me, but please, Lord, don't do it in your anger. He's saying, Lord, please have mercy on me. Don't be angry with me. Don't give me what I deserve. That's an incredible plea, isn't it? What does this teach us about David's relationship with God? Well, it teaches us that his primary concern in his sin is his relationship with God. He's concerned about the consequences. He's concerned about what his sin does to other people. But his first matter of order is that he gets right with his heavenly Father. He recognizes that his biggest problem is that he's offended a holy God. He broke his law. He says the same thing in Psalm 51. Verse 4, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Brothers and sisters, this is at the heart of true repentance. This is where it has to start. And we're so afraid to go there sometimes, aren't we? But this is the kind of prayer that our God loves to hear. Loves and delights in answering because he's a good father. I mean, just think as a parent, many of you are parents, and if you're in that season of discipline, you know how it can be. You might probably remember it, even if your kids are grown up. It just feels like you're constantly disciplining, that you'll just never get past it. It's just so hard. Nothing's getting through. 
Imagine if your child comes up to you one day and says, Dad, Mom, I did it again. I know I was wrong. I deserve to be punished. But please, don't be angry with me. Now, some of us would probably pass out. (laughs) Those words came out of our kid's mouth like, where did that come from? But what parent wouldn't delight in that? That wouldn't be overjoyed that they're coming to you even though they've sinned. Because they want to restore that relationship. Now, it's not a perfect analogy of our relationship with the Father. But God delights in showing mercy to his children. He delights in these kinds of prayers. Especially because he's the one that brought them to this point. Look at verse 2. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. This is talking about God's hand and discipline. It's a metaphorical picture of what God has done in his heart. He's brought conviction. He showed him the destruction of his sin, so much so that David runs to the Father. It's God-wrought conviction that leads him to this place, that leads him to see my sin brings wrath and discipline. And what else does sin bring? Verse 3. It brings weakness. Weakness, two kinds of weakness actually, spiritual and physical. The first physical, look at verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh, my body, because of your indignation, your hatred of my sin. You're being set against me. There is no health in my bones. That's a very Hebrew way of saying the deepest part of me. Down to the very skeletal structure, my depravity runs deep because of my sin. There's nothing in me untouched by pain and sorrow. That's what David is saying. And then he changes his analogy. Look at verse 4. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. This is the perfect analogy for sin, by the way. Flood or a heavy weight. Because you know this. One sin at a time doesn't seem like a big deal. One lie, one thought, one angry comment, they deserved it anyway. No big deal. It seems like a little bitty drop, a raindrop in a pond, or a little bit more weight in the pack. But then God brings conviction. And all of a sudden, we are overwhelmed by the amount of sin. It's almost as if all those sins have gathered up, and David's saying, now they're going to flood over me. My guilt is going to flood over me like a flood. My guilt is so heavy, I can't even lift it. It reminds me of Pilgrim's Progress. I say this every sermon. If you haven't read that book yet, please order that today. Read that book. It's such a great book in so many ways. But Pilgrim's Progress, this is how the book starts. Do you remember? He's reading God's Word. And what's he doing? He's weeping. He's lamenting. Because God's word has revealed that he has this burden of sin and judgment on his back that he can't free himself from. And so that sets him on his heavenly celestial journey and really sets him to the cross to relieve that burden from him. But that's where David is, overwhelmed by sin. And he's feeling that physically. Look at verse 5. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I wonder if this analogy is kind of lost on our sanitized, highly medical day. I don't think any of us have had wounds that stink and fester, not like battle wounds, unless we see somebody dying. 
David's familiar with this. He says, that's like my sin. Then he says, verse 6, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. I'm doubled over in pain. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. My body is falling apart. I'm in constant pain. David said, I'm literally rotting from the inside out. That's how intense my pain is. And why? Because I'm an idiot. Because I'm a fool, verse 5. It's because of my foolishness. I believe Satan's lies. I believe that the sin that promised pleasure and satisfaction and joy would actually deliver. And I tasted of that sin. But then it left me with festering, stinking wounds. That sin which I thought would be a delight has led to my destruction, even physically here. I would imagine most of us are not comfortable talking about our sin like this, especially connecting our sin to our physical body. I'm sure people, the alarm bells are probably going off. Wait, is he saying that sin leads to illness? Am I sick because I messed up somewhere? Is that what he's actually getting at? Kind of. We love to take this metaphorically and say, you know what, this is all spiritual turmoil. This is not literal. This kind of horrible wreckage from sin is all just internal struggle, turmoil in his soul. The only problem with that, the Bible has many passages where sin leads to illness, even to death. One we're very familiar with, 1 Corinthians 11. We read it every Sunday, and you may not know, or maybe you forgot, right after the passage we read, Paul says this, Anyone who eats and drinks, eats and drinks the Lord's Supper without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. God says, you're coming to the Lord's table with unrepentant sin. You're coming drunk. You're coming with division in the body. That's why I've made you sick. That's why some of you are dying. Your sin is leading to the destruction of your body. And then, of course, you have the extreme example, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, who lie to the church, who lie to the Holy Spirit, and what happens? God kills them on the spot. Now, is this always the case? Of course not. All of us would be dead, right? We'd be dead a long time ago. But can our illnesses always be traced back to some particular sin? No. Not every illness can be traced back like that. Jesus even taught against it, didn't he? When he was asked, why is this man born blind? In John 9, what does Jesus say? It was not this man that sinned or his parents that were sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's not just that sin that led to his blindness. If you want to make that connection every time, you have a really big problem with Jesus, who died and suffered although he'd never sinned. Or Job, a righteous man who suffered greatly. So how do you sort all this mess out? Does sin lead to death? Does sin lead to illness? What's going on here? I love what Kevin DeYoung says about this as he sums it up. Listen to this. It's so helpful. He says, not all suffering is a result of sin, but sin makes for the worst kind of suffering. This is what we need to remember, brothers and sisters. We're not to be the ones that obsess over connecting all the dots trying to figure out what sin led to what illness. That's not the point of it. But when we encounter suffering and illness in ourselves and in other people, 
we should be reminded that we live in a fallen world. We should be reminded of what we've been learning in Genesis, that we're fallen in Adam, and we should be reminded of our need for God and our need for his mercy. When you see someone suffering, when you suffer from suffering yourself, it should prompt your heart to say, Lord, I deserve far worse. I deserve so much worse than this. Please, save me from my sin. Forgive me. That's what this connection should do. And the second thing it should do, it should remind us that we were made by God, both body and soul. We love to divide those up and say, no, the body doesn't affect the soul. The soul doesn't affect the body. But we know better. You know better from your own experience, don't you? Have you ever been so sad, so worried, so much in inner turmoil that it affects your body? You can't sleep? You become ill? Many of us have. Have you ever been in so much physical pain that it affects your soul? It makes you bitter? It makes you impatient? makes you angry? Our bodies and souls are mysteriously connected, where what we do in the body does affect our soul. But that's not just all bad, by the way. That's also a really good thing. Because even when we're in spiritual turmoil and struggle, we can still control our bodies. We can still obey even if we don't feel like it. We can pick up our Bibles and read, even when we're depressed. We can control our mouth and smile at our kids, even when we're heavy-hearted. We can come to church, even in pain, as many of you do, even when we don't feel like it. And we pray, Lord, let my heart catch up to my body as I obey. Look, I'm not saying that this is just always, it's simply worked out. It takes wisdom to sort out these things, which is why God gave us the word and why God gives us the church. But we have to be careful to not divide body and soul, and David doesn't either. After he talks about the body, he goes right to the soul. Look at verse eight, the weakness in his soul. I am feeble, I'm numb, and crushed, I'm weak. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. My heart is a wreck. And what does he do? Verse nine. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. Now, I think David here means two kinds of longing. I think he's talking about sinful longing. He's confessing this, sinful desires, but he's also talking about longing for holiness. That's why he says all. You see that in verse 9? All my longings, everything. It's all in front of you, Lord. You know my heart. You know the wickedness that comes out of me. You know it better than I do. You know my struggle, but you also know that I'm sick of this fight. You also know how much I want to be holy, how much I want to honor you. And here's the biggest problem of all, verse 10. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. David's saying, I have no strength left. There's no fight left in me. My flesh and my heart are failing. No matter how much I fight sin, I can't fix my sinful condition. Can you relate to that? You ever get to the point of exasperation over your sin? And you hate it, but you still realize you want to turn to it? As a dog returns to his vomit, as Proverbs 26, 11 says. You want to be rid of it in one moment, and you want to hold on to it the next. Paul knows the struggle. Romans 7, he says, 
7.15, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate. And David is reaching out to God in this struggle. God's discipline has graciously brought him to the point where he realizes his weakness, his inability, both physically and spiritually, and so he reaches out to God. Sin brings weakness. It brings wrath and discipline. Sin also brings alienation. Look at verse 11. Sin brings alienation. It has social ramifications too. Verse 11. My friends and companions, those that love me in other words, Stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin, even my own family, stand far off. David's not talking about like self-isolation, running from his sins, running from relationships, not making eye contact. That's foolish enough, but we do that to cover it up. David's not covering it up. He can't. It's out in the open. The world knows his sin. It's exposed. So the kind of isolation he's talking about is when people isolate themselves from him. This is the world and even the church alienating themselves from the sinner, even his closest family. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people think when David wrote this, he might have had leprosy because he's cast out. It seems lonely, unclean, like someone disconnected from his own people. He's festering in wounds. kind of makes sense. But you know what? You don't need leprosy to experience this, do you? When we're in darkness... When the weight of sin and suffering is heavy upon us, it not only feels like God has walked away from us, but it feels like the very people we love that we depend on are also pulling away. And a lot of people do. When suffering and sin come out, a lot of people step back because they can't handle it. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. But by God's grace, he enables many, and I think many in this church, to step forward into suffering, to suffer along with other people. This is a heavy psalm, but I was so encouraged all week to think of how you have faithfully prayed and provided for and visited and encouraged those that are suffering in this church. As pastors, we hear about needs usually after they're already met. It's incredible. And so many of you step into that with no hesitation. So many of you have stepped into the trauma of foster care and adoption. So many of you have encouraged us this week as we had to say goodbye to our last foster daughter. I've been so encouraged by people reaching out to us and stepping into the suffering to suffer alongside of us. And I know some of you suffer from tough relationships, even difficult marriages where you're pretty much the punching bag. You receive all the insults. You get all the lies. You get all the pain, and you get nothing in return. But you're in that. You're faithful in that to love them, to be faithful to your vows, to care for that person, to preach the gospel in that place. I'm so thankful for God's gracious work in this church, that people draw near in suffering. It's not always the case. It may not always be the case here. I pray that it is. But a lot of people experience what David is experiencing here. And I hope, by God's grace, we are the ones to step into that. So sin brings weakness. It brings alienation. It also brings death. Maybe the ultimate consequence connected to wrath, the first thing it brings. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. David says, But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. 
I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. Why is David's mouth shut? Why can't he rebuke? Because he's guilty. His sin is there. It's exposed. If he sinned against them, they could easily throw it back in his face and he has nothing to say. You can't rebuke when the truth is out there, when you've messed up. That's part of what David is saying here. But David is going further than that, I think. David is trying to show, he's trying to describe what happens when we give ourselves to idols. Why is David becoming deaf, mute, and dumb? Because he's worshiping that which is deaf, mute, and dumb. Giving himself to created things rather than the creator of the universe. This is all over scripture, but Psalm 115 sums this up really well. Verse 4 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of their hands. And listen, they have mouths, but can't speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. And noses, but do not smell. Doesn't that sound like what David's describing? And verse 8 says, Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. David's saying, I am becoming just like the idols I worship. I am becoming spiritually dead as they are physically dead. And God has graciously disciplined him to see that, to reveal this destruction. Does this describe you? Do you recognize this kind of destruction in your life because of sin? That God's destruction or God's brought discipline into your life and wrath shown you that your sin involves spiritual and even physical weakness. That sin brings alienation and even death as we worship the world rather than our creator. Look, if you recognize that this morning, if that weighs heavy on your soul, what should we do? How do we respond? How does David respond? Look at verse 15. We see the sinner's response in three parts here. Verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. That is the hardest part in suffering, isn't it? So many ways. To wait when you're in pain. To wait when you're hanging guilty. I so much, when I read this psalm, I want to get into this place and pat David on the back. So it'll be okay. Trust the Lord. And that's what we want to do with people around us. David is waiting, although he could have done many other things. He could have run. He could have tried to fight back, take matters into his own hands, defend himself, try to throw out some lies and slander about the people accusing him. He could have complained. He could have blamed. He could have just ignored it, moved on. No, it's not really that big a deal. God's conviction isn't really that big a deal. That's what we do. But what does he do? He waits. He waits on who? waits on the Lord. See, David recognizes that he is helpless to fix his fallen condition. He can do nothing to atone from his sin. He is saying here, look, if there's a solution to this mess, it has to come from outside of me. Because I'm out of resources. I'm out of hope. I have nothing left to fix this. I need a holy God to fix this. But that's part of the problem. God is holy. He hates David's sin and our sin more than we do. And we don't deserve God's help. We deserve this destruction. So why is David waiting on a God that's set against him? Because he's holy. Why is he waiting on a God who's disciplining him? In this moment, verse 16 gives us the reason. For, right, there's the reason, because this is why I'm waiting on the Lord. For, I said, only let them not rejoice over me. 
who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. Does that sound like a reason to wait on the Lord? Why did he say four there? It doesn't make sense. Who are these people that are rejoicing over him? How is his fall a reason to wait on the Lord? Go back up to verse 12. I skipped it earlier for a reason. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. You see, what's happened to David is when his allies pulled back, when people pulled away from him in his sin and suffering, his enemies drew near. His enemies saw blood in the water and they wanted to strike. And they recognized if they take out David, they can take out Israel. They can take out God's people. They can take out maybe even God himself. Don't we see this when a leader falls in the church? People see this as a chance to attack. So David's not praying here, Lord, save my reputation. Don't let them mock over me. Don't let me lose my throne. I really like being king. That's not what David's saying. He's saying, Lord, save your reputation. Save your people. Lord, don't let them disgrace your holy name because of me. I'm a fool. I've not only ruined my own life, I've risked your reputation. I've risked your people. And if I fall, many will fall with me. Lord, be gracious to me and to your people and save me for your sake. Now, how can David have confidence that God will answer a prayer like this? Go back to verse 15. This is the essence of his confidence here. Verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. Then he says, it is you, O Lord, my God. Who will answer? It's my God. He's not just waiting. David's waiting in faith. He's waiting, trusting in his Lord. He knows that his God is far more dependable than him. He knows that his God never, never breaks a promise. This is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of his fathers, the one who stayed with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob despite their foolishness. The God who refused to wipe his hands even of his sinful bride. The God who promised, I will be with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. David is remembering that. He remembers that God has always been faithful to answer that. And so he trusts in his God to deliver him for God's glory. That's what David is trusting in here. But what does he do while he trusts and waits? He repents. He repents. Look at verse 18. And repentance is confession and obedience. Or look at 18. I confess my iniquity, my sinfulness, my impurity. I am sorry for my sin. David's saying, look, I know I didn't just slip up. It wasn't some youthful indiscretion. I sinned because I have a sin problem. I sinned because I'm a sinner. I'm sorry, Lord. Forgive me. I repent of my sin. But it's not just confession. Verse 19, what else? But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. That's weird. If that strikes you as strange, why? Wouldn't they have a right to hate David at this point, especially if his sin was against them? He's not innocent. He should be hated for his sin. How is he saying that they hate me wrongfully? Verse 20. Those who render me evil 
for good. Accuse me because I follow after good. Do you see what David's saying here? Yes, I've sinned. I'm going to hate it and I confess it. But I'm going to turn back to the good. I'm going to turn back and obey God's law. This is repentance, brothers and sisters. This is such an important distinction because in our world, repentance is merely confession. It's good for the soul. Just get it off your chest. You can move on and do whatever you want with your life. That's not true repentance. That's not biblical repentance. Repentance is confession. It is trusting. It is waiting on God, but then it's turning from your sin. Trusting in the Lord and obeying once again. Like that wonderful hymn, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. The Heidelberg Catechism sums up repentance in a wonderful way. In question 88, it says this, What is involved in genuine repentance? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising of the new. That gives us another question, which is question 89. What is the dying away of the old self then? Listen to this. To be genuinely sorry for your sin and to more and more hate it and run from it. That's repentance. Does that describe your attitude towards sin? Let me rephrase that. Does that describe your attitude towards your own sin? Because we love to hate on the sin of others. So easy for us to see and to have this sense of justice that others need to be accountable for what they do wrong. But we'll let ourselves off the hook. Does this describe the way you think about your own sin? Are you genuinely sorry for your sin? Do you hate your sin enough to run from it? Are you waiting on the Lord, not trying to fix it yourself, in faith and repentance? And what should we all be doing while we wait? The very last few verses, we should be looking to Jesus in faith and repentance. I don't know if you felt the tension in the psalm. I deliberately left it there for a reason. This whole time, David is hoping, he's waiting, and it never seems to get relieved. Never seems to be fixed. And you're thinking, what are you waiting for? What are you hoping for? Is it deliverance? Is it just the relief of your pain? Is it just some change of circumstances? David, what are you looking to? What is the object of your faith? Verse 21, do not forsake me, O Lord, O Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, who he says again is my God. Be not far from me, just as you promised. Draw near to me, even in my sin. And verse 22, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. David's not saying, save me, save your people, fix this mess. He's saying, you are my salvation. You are what I'm longing for. You are the object of my faith. I don't need just deliverance. I don't need you to just fix this one sin that happened. I need deliverance from my sinfulness. I need the Satan crusher that you promised. I need the seed of Abraham. I need the eternal Davidic king that David is heard that promise himself. I need nothing short of God in flesh to fix my sin problem. I need you, God. That's where sin should bring us. And the amazing part about this confession of David is as he's confessing, he's pointing. He's pointing and previewing the better Davidic king. 
Because the better Davidic king, Jesus Christ, would come and conquer our sin problem, but he would conquer it through suffering. He would conquer it as the man of sorrows that we read about earlier in the service. He would come and enter our pain and take on the destruction, the full weight of sin. He would be the one to bear God's wrath that we deserve. He became weak so we might not be destroyed. He was alienated, abandoned by his closest brothers at his moment of need so that we might be adopted into the family of God. Jesus died so that we might live. And that's what David is looking for. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, when David prays in verse 21, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. The only reason that God would answer that for David or for us is because his son cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the object of David's faith in the midst of this destruction. Is it the object of yours? Are you looking to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Because if you're not, you have no hope. You cannot call this God your God, your Father. All you get to call him is judge. And if you die today in your sins, this destruction will only get worse. Repent. Trust in the finished work of Jesus. That is your only solution, the only hope any of us have. And if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, rejoice. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. Jesus has paid it all. All of the destruction and the penalty of sin has been wiped away. And he will come again to free us from the presence of sin. You are forgiven. Run to him. No excuses, no ifs or buts or use. No more fake repentance. Run to him like David in faith and repentance. He is our only hope. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even weighty, heavy psalms like this can be such a help to our weary souls. Father, help us not to excuse, to trivialize, ignore, rationalize, and whatever we might do to our sin, Lord, but help us to run to you like David. Help us to see clearly your hand of discipline and even judgment around us so that we might be led to repentance and led to our Savior Jesus. Help us do that time and time again because you are a God who is faithful to forgive. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.